The Lens Pod is a medical student-run podcast for educational purposes only and reflects the opinions of the hosts and guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lens Pod, a medical student ophthalmology podcast. My name is Victor. And I'm Haley. And we are your medical student hosts for this episode. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Grace Sun to discuss women in ophthalmology and gender equity in ophthalmology. Dr. Sun is an associate professor of ophthalmology at Weill Cornell Medical College, where she practices as a comprehensive ophthalmologist and cataract surgeon. She received her MD at Weill Cornell Medical College and then went on to complete her ophthalmology residency at New York Presbyterian Hospital slash Weill Cornell Medical Center. She has also served as the program director of ophthalmology residency at Weill Cornell Medicine for 10 years and the president of the New York State Ophthalmological Society. Dr. Sun currently serves as the director of ophthalmology clinical practice at Weill Cornell in Lower Manhattan and is the president of Women in Ophthalmology. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sun. Thanks so much for having me, Victor and Haley. So we always start off the podcast uh, with a short icebreaker segment called Pick of the Week. So is there anything that you read, watched, or listened to, or did lately that you really enjoyed or would recommend to our listeners? Great question. I'm I'm smiling. I know you guys can't see me, but um, for my husband's birthday, um, we went to a magic show in New York City. It was called The Magician, and it was amazing. So uh, we saw this um, 45-minute show, and one of my favorite tricks was The Magician, Dan White, took this $100 bill from an audience member and released it into the New York City sky, red balloon into the sky, gone. And somehow, magically, he made it reappear in another audience's hands. So all rational adult pretenses disappeared as well, because all you have to have is that childlike wonder. So that's highly recommended, whether or not it's a magic show or just to kind of go back and have that childlike sense of wonderment. That's what I truly enjoyed um, most recently. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I actually, I never been to a magic show. I, I, I didn't realize that there was a scene for that in the city. So that's, that's pretty cool. There are quite a few, actually. There, I had to choose. And my, my husband is a um, teacher. And I'm like, you just need to learn a magic trick. That's how you get the attention of, of kids. <laughs> And I would love for a $100 bill to appear in my pocket. <laughs> Me too. And do you have a book, podcast, or media recommendation for medical students that are interested in ophthalmology specifically? There are several that probably have been mentioned on your podcast before. The American Academy of Ophthalmology's medical student um, section. And um, there is iRounds for University of Iowa. I would say, though, read about what interests you. I think at the medical student level, oftentimes you are motivated by what the right thing to do is. 
I think the right thing to do is get engaged in things that excite you. So hopefully you chose ophthalmology because something about the eyeball interests you, whether or not it's surgery or it's community work or it's global ophthalmology, read about what's interesting to you. I think that's great advice. And so moving into talking more about women in ophthalmology, the organization, or as some of us casually call it WIO, could you describe women in ophthalmology as an organization and what the mission of women in ophthalmology is? Sure. The mission of WIO, Women in Ophthalmology, is to enhance and support the professional environment for women ophthalmologists. Now, that's the official mission, but what does that mean? Many of us know that there is evidence out there that there are fewer women in leadership in ophthalmology. There are fewer women leading clinical trials in ophthalmology. There's a gender pay gap. There's gender discrimination, believe it or not, in ophthalmology. So what WIO does to highlight these issues and to support women is to offer, for example, a clinical trials training program. There are leadership uh, skills training in our national meeting, the summer symposium in August. There are mentoring programs to support women that are entering ophthalmology or who are well-established in ophthalmology. There are negotiation workshops, communication workshops. So the summer symposium is a great meeting to go to, but throughout the year, there are opportunities to elevate women and those who who support women through this organization. That's great. And I had the pleasure of being able to attend the summer symposium last year, and I can attest that it's a conference full of empowerment. It's very unique um, and it's friendly to women and men because it is important for men to learn about these issues and support their female colleagues. So I'm really glad that you were able to kind of describe the other things outside of that awesome summer symposium because even I wasn't fully familiar. So thank you for sharing. And how did you personally get involved with WIO? I was invited to join the Summer Symposium Program Committee by one of my mentors, Dr. Bonnie Henderson, who, if you don't know her, she's an incredible cataract surgeon, leader in ophthalmology. She was president of ASCRIS, the Society for Cataract and Refractive Surgeons, and she asked me to join a committee. And oftentimes that is how leadership begins, by saying yes, by doing a great job, by being asked again, and continue in that trajectory and perhaps becoming president of WIO. Yeah, you truly climbed the ladder. (laughs) But I agree, I think it's so important for women to support women. And I know in history that hasn't always been the narrative, um, but I've seen that in ophthalmology and in the medical field in general. Uh, So I always think it's great when you think of a friend or a colleague that could be great for something or they might be interested in because we need more people, more bodies, more advocacy. 
Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, my there's this great question out there that women don't know how to say no. How do you say the nice no? And that we're always saying yes. And then we become sort of overwhelmed, overcommitted with everything that we've say, said yes to. And what you've brought up is the the way to say no, thank you, not at this time, but I have this wonderful colleague who would be perfect to speak at the meeting or to do to serve on that committee. So it WIO in particular is a, a community that is very supportive and there's this wonderful sense of camaraderie. And I'm so glad that you were able to see that at Summer Symposium last year. Yeah, me too. And I love that addition or amendment to saying no, because that is very challenging. And I think a lot of females, especially female physicians can relate to that. So I know that you mentioned partly that gender discrimination does still exist, um, even though some people may not think it does in the field. So what issues have you witnessed regarding either discrimination or gender equity in ophthalmology in general? Many of the the issues that I've mentioned previously, like the wage gap or gender discrimination or the implicit bias of uh, women perhaps um, not having time to do something because they need to you know take care of the home or they have a young child. Those I've either experienced myself or certainly have had um, close colleagues who've experienced those concerns. And again, that is why a community like Women in Ophthalmology and there are other communities that, that exist out there um, can be so powerful because suddenly there's this collective of people who are experiencing those same issues. And much of the change that may need to occur for gender equity are actually structural. For example, there are laws that can be created that require companies, large companies, to publish their pay scale. You know, what can we do about family leave or maternity leave? Those are structural issues that um, can come to the forefront because there are women in leadership who bring those issues to the table. I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great point you made too of how sometimes it's hard to even know that other people are experiencing what you're experiencing until you kind of get together and just share your experiences or what's happened to you. So there's so much power behind kind of recognizing a pattern and trying to bring attention to something that's not fair or not equal. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Like This is all very inspiring. I was wondering, um, particularly as a male medical student and trainee in ophthalmology, what could I do to better support my female colleagues and be an ally in the space? Oh, I love that question. One of the biggest supporters of women in ophthalmology is Tom Oding. So Tom Oding was the program director at University of Iowa, and he would get his women residents and come up with like a scavenger hunt project where he would give them a list of women to meet at 
the summer symposium or the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And this gave them essentially an icebreaker to meet people like Ruth Williams or Tamara Fountain, who are leaders in their field, and allow these young women, medical students, residents, um, to meet such powerful, influential women in ophthalmology. Specifically for you, there are many ways as well. For example, I'm sure you've been in the room before where perhaps one of your female colleagues were called nurse or a technician rather than doctor. So there are opportunities to be in, you know, a bystander, upstander, sort of the the training that one can get if you're uncomfortable, perhaps being a, you know, a medical student yourself um, and speaking up. Or if you're in the room and someone has a great idea and wasn't heard, but the classic example is, you know, a female colleague comes up with an idea and sort of just gets either unheard or poo-pooed or overlooked, and then suddenly somebody else who is perhaps in our position of power says essentially the same thing, and suddenly it's like the greatest invention ever, you have an opportunity to be like, yes, you know, so-and-so just brought that up. Um, I totally agree with both of you. There are opportunities there, and I think it's not just women. Um, There are certain dynamics you know, in the boardroom, in a meeting where there's always someone who perhaps is younger, or there's a person who has a disability or a person of color that may not feel as if they have the ability or the position to have a voice, to have a seat at the table. But you're in that room for a reason. So use your voice. Thank you so much for those insights. Those are all uh, scenarios that I've seen. Um, definitely, even in, during my third year, there'd be times where I'd be working with a female, as a medical student, I'd be working with a female resident and we'll be in the room together and people would assume that I'm the boss and they're not, right? And then I have to correct them. And I can relate to this a little bit as somebody who's a Black male in medicine and underrepresented. There are times where things I say are not taken as seriously. So when there are situations when which, you know, I have a colleague who is either underrepresented in medicine or a woman, there'll be times where their voice is not heard or they'll say something, but they they don't feel the confidence or feel empowered to say what they want to say. And there are times like in certain some meetings, like I'll whisper to them, like, say it louder, like you got it, just do it. (laughs) And they'll say it louder and they'll get the credit for it. So, you know, I, I hope those are things that I can continue to do as a male in ophthalmology and encourage my male colleagues to also elevate and um, amplify the voices of women because I think it's very important. Thank you. I'm counting on you. The voice of a Black male in ophthalmology is certainly underrepresented and needs to be heard. I don't think that you personally have thought about the the power that you sort of hold to support women, perhaps because you are undergoing some of those same issues yourself. And the idea of creating allyship is very important. And, you know, programs 
that exist, such as the American Academy of Ophthalmology's mom program and mentoring programs in WIO, for example, they exist for a reason because this the mentorship and sponsorship of people who are already in the field suddenly, you know, gives you a little bit more confidence to realize that you too have something to contribute in this field and you recognize that your own sort of imposter syndrome is not just your own and being underrepresented in medicine, whether or not you are African-American or a woman in ophthalmology or, you know, other minority groups in medicine, I think raising our voices as a collective can sort of lift, lifts us all. Yeah, I agree shortly. Just, you know, most of my mentors actually in ophthalmology are men and they've been wonderful men who have kind of lifted me up and always told me that I could do it. And I think you really truly do gain so much strength in someone's confidence in you. And I think as a colleague, you can definitely exude that confidence with your co-resident. Um, and I think just your attitude and your your presence can really go a long way. Well, to Haley's point, many of her mentors were men. Many of my mentors were men in leadership because there were fewer, there are fewer women in leadership. And as a young resident, medical student, or a young attending, you may feel like that is not attainable because there's nobody up there that looks like you. And the the support of your colleagues, men or women, but especially men in leadership because they're just more of them in leadership and re, in, in research, leading clinical trials, um, editors of the leading journals in ophthalmology, Absolutely, the their support is critical. So in addition to that, we are also wondering, do you potentially see more opportunities for medical students to become involved in women in ophthalmology in addition to the annual poster conference? Absolutely. Women in ophthalmology is a is an organization uh, with membership from all levels. So we have medical students, we have residents and fellows, we have people who are early in their career and you know later in their career. We're trying to meet the needs of all. The membership um, category of trainees and medical students is actually a very large part of WIO and certainly a important membership category. So what we're thinking of doing and what we aim to do is to have a young ophthalmologist, whether or not it's defined as still in training or five years um, since training um, on each of our committees. So we would like the input of medical students and trainees in our programming. Um, so we're trying to expand that category. Would love your input. I think that's a great idea. And I know that there are plenty of young female ophthalmologists who are really interested in getting more involved. 
Um, do you foresee any kind of on that same note, like scholarship opportunity, or if there are any scholarship opportunities, would you like to share them for our listeners? Certainly. I think that we are trying to come up with more funding opportunities to support medical students um, to come to the meeting. Certainly it's free to join. The meeting is what's costly. And given that there are more and more medical students who are interested in coming to the meeting, we are certainly exploring those options. Yeah, I know it's a tough thing to make happen, not to put you in the hot seat, uh, but I do think across the board with all conferences, it's always great to try and have a scholarship just because it's more accessible yeah, uh, for us. So that's great that you all are looking into that. We certainly value the medical students and trainees in the meeting. The med students in, in particular bring such energy and curiosity to the meeting that we we love having the med students there um, to to engage to ask questions and it's just fun to have people from all different levels of training um, there at the meeting i'll work on it great and also this is a side note i probably won't include this in the episode but i loved what you said about dr odin's scavenger hunt and i'm wondering if there could be something like that incorporated into the meeting for students because i know it's so intimidating um as a medical student going and i always feel so awkward kind of lingering in the corner when i want to applaud someone on their presentation or talk to them could be really cool that just made me think of it yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're you're welcome to, to include this or not, but at the summer symposium, we typically have like a bingo card so that, you know, it'll say like meet a member of the board. And, you know, so we do encourage this type of interaction because I know it's awkward um, to kind of go up to you know, someone who's on the podium and say, hi, I'm medical student so-and-so, and I just wanted to, you know, tell you that I loved your talk, but it's okay. I, I think that what I've learned over the years is that you, you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone and say hello. I remember I went to Stanford for undergrad and I loved walking by the business school on Friday afternoon because part of business school is this thing called networking. And networking, I thought, was like this slimy word where you're just like, oh, I want to get an edge in. I'm going to like seal the deal, et cetera. And it's not. It really is something about meeting people, building connections, and hey, they become your mentors, they become your sponsors. The next time you go to a meeting, you can be like, Dr. Coleman, I met you at WIO Summer Symposium, and I was so inspired by you. It's so nice to see you again. And guess what? She's going to be slightly embarrassed that maybe she doesn't remember you, but she's like, oh yeah, I got to remember this girl next time. So introduce yourself, say hello. I think that's great advice. And I also think it revisits the idea of sitting at the table and the idea of we have, we kind of were conditioned in our society not to think that way as women. And sometimes we have to 
push ourselves, like you said, or reprogram that part of our brain that puts up walls and tells us to be quiet and sit or to not just to not bother the person. So I would encourage all of the medical students to get engaged in organized medicine. And this is not just a women's organization like Women Ophthalmology or AMWA or the Student Association. It's whatever you can get passionate about in medical school because it teaches you the skills of advocacy. And whether it's going up to Capitol Hill and you know speaking up for your patients or speaking up for your profession, or talking about, you know, being underrepresented in medicine or talking about being a woman in medicine and talking about women's eye issues. The earlier you get involved in organized medicine, the more comfortable you'll be later on sitting at that table because your voices need to be heard. Um, so uh, currently, what are some of the ways that medical students are contributing to WIO? At WIO, we appreciate the enthusiasm and engagement of the med students. I think the energy that we see of the med students at Summer Symposium is evident. You guys are so excited to be there, and we're grateful that that you participate whether or not it's through submitting your research, speaking on the podium, even participating in through the wet labs that are available for sign up. Those are opportunities, not just for the medical students to get engaged, but also to, again, build the connection with someone who can potentially be a mentor. Other ways I think would be and volunteering for opportunities to serve on committees. And, you know, hopefully we'll be opening up some more opportunities. I think there are ways to engage with women in ophthalmology through social media. That's another really great way of communication that I think medical students are way better at than I am for sure. Those are some of the ways. Those are great. And those are also very doable. Um, and we recognize, you know, that medical students are very busy um, and all these things should come after their clinical duties and after their schooling. But it is really cool to think about a level of engagement that is even just through social media and learning more about important issues and opportunities. So we encourage everyone, if you're listening to, to even if you don't have a ton of time, you know, look at women in ophthalmology on Instagram or on Twitter. And so this one, this question is a little bit more personal. Um, I was, you know, looking at some of your research projects and I saw that there was one project that you were a part of a large group uh, looking into the couples match in urology and ophthalmology. Um, and when I was just reading through some of the results, I noticed something about how women tend to be less likely to discuss their significant other's you know, application status or if their partner's going through um, ERAS or SF match at the same time as them. Um, and women are less likely to mention that than men when they speak with program directors. And I was wondering, from your own experience, why do you think this happens? And why is it important that we encourage women not to be afraid to discuss practical matters of planning and their future? I got interested in this research 
because I was program director at Cornell for the last 10 years. And I've interviewed a lot of students. And I know that ophthalmology already is a competitive subspecialty. And it makes it sometimes harder because now there's no true couples match and people don't know how to present themselves. So the finding in this study that you had mentioned that women may be less likely to discuss their significant other's application status is probably driven out of fear. I have a story of when I was a resident and two um, of my co-residents were out on maternity leave. And while it can't be said, I know that the program director's head was thinking about how challenging those maternity leaves left the program. So I imagine that people are just afraid to talk about their status, and certainly it's not legal to ask whether or not one is pregnant or accepting children, et cetera. But I think that residents are so interested in doing a good job, being a team player, working really hard, that that really shouldn't be an issue. I mentioned earlier about some of the biases, implicit bias, or perhaps explicit at times that may hinder women from getting opportunities in medicine and how the solutions are oftentimes bigger. They're structural. How do we create leave that is fair for everyone? How do we rethink residency training that perhaps it isn't something that is so structured that needs to be completed in 48 months? Is there a time where some people would quote unquote graduate early because they've achieved competency in what's required in ophthalmology? Um, so competency-based education versus something that is time-based that requires people on so many different levels to buy in, but it would address some of the biases that not just women, but young parents face in training. So I think the long answer to your question, it's, it's driven by fear of not matching. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it is fear. I think I and some of my colleagues have, because I just went through the application process and I was lucky in the fact that my partner is ahead of me and we did not have to go through this at the same exact time because it also depends who you ask, you know, if you should bring it up because some people will be like, of course, like, why not? And other, will, other people will say, mm, I wouldn't. So you just never know who the person interviewing you is. And I was afraid to even think about it, let alone have to go through it. And there is, I think, a different bias when women bring it up. I feel like this is, again, my personal opinion, but sometimes I think when men bring up like their wife is in a certain place or their partner, it's like, oh, of course that makes sense logistically. But when a woman brings it up, it's, oh, you're just following a man or, oh, your career, you don't take your career as seriously. 
when that's not the case. And of course, not all people think that way, but I think we've seen that in media and we've seen that in real life growing up. And then as women, we're afraid when it's our time and our jobs on the line. Um, so I, I definitely agree with the fear aspect. And I also love that you brought up this idea of how can we rethink the structure of how residency is set up or how the field is set up in general. And it's hard. Some people love to be where they're comfortable and it's challenging to kind of break the boundaries of what has really just been the precedent all these years. So I think it's really cool that people in a leadership position like you are are having these thoughts and that we're having these discussions and that's how change will happen eventually. I think that the the questions have to be brought up and that's why a, a research study is important. There was another study that I was involved in that looked at differences in surgical volume between female and male residents. And the results were surprising and really disappointing that even when controlling for things like maternity leave, that the female residents graduated with fewer surgical numbers. And while this wasn't a a study that involved all residency programs, it certainly caused the program directors as well as the review committees to think about why. And without that study, we really wouldn't have thought about something perhaps that wasn't identified as a cause of that difference. So again, research, counting, having the numbers, and then oftentimes having a woman be part of the the study will bring up those questions. Yeah, that's an awesome example of how research can inform advocacy and just further the field in many ways. I was thinking since you brought up some of the challenges and disparities that exist amongst uh, male and female resident trainees as far as surgical volume goes, Does that fear of discussing uh, relationships and family planning extend beyond just simply um, the match process and kind of linger around throughout residency? I want to say that, I really want to say that it's no, but I, (laughs) I know that there is the concern and it's been brought up by my residents in terms of how do they think about family planning. And it's not always female. I think what I'm seeing is that my young male residents equally want to be engaged in the the early months, and they fear that their leave will affect their surgical training or their clinical training. It's I, I wish I could say that it's unfounded, but you know, the the truth is that there's a time-based training model right now. And thankfully, you know, we don't have to extend per se residency training if you've met the competencies, as long as requirements, for example, like sitting on the uh, for the boards have been met. But there are also other considerations where perhaps your, you know, new child has greater needs and you have to take more time. So what do we do there? We have to extend residency. And then that affects fellowship and the timing of that. And we work it out. I certainly have had 
um, instances where we've had to work it out. Uh, I think that people feel like their lives have to be so organized that if they veer off this plan, there's no way to get back on. And that's just not true. I think that it's cliche, but people say there's no time, there's no perfect time to start a family. And I tell my male and female residents that is a decision that, you know, your family comes to, and we will work it out to support you, to make it happen, to ensure that you have excellent clinical and surgical training. I think it's so important for trainees, medical students to think about their relationships and and family. At graduation, at every residency graduation, I always start with a thank you. A thank you to the family of our residents, their spouses, their parents, perhaps their children who are there. Because becoming a physician is, is hard. It's unpredictable. And once you're done with training, it's really just the beginning because things become even more complex. And being a successful clinician, physician, researcher, leader can only be done successfully with the support of others. And this idea of work-life integration is, is tricky. But part of that success really lies on who your social network is, which includes family and it includes friends and it includes mentors. So thinking about how you want to create your network is really important. Another thing that has come up recently because of a young trainee is increasing fertility preservation benefits and training. So I'm no longer program director in ophthalmology after 10 years because I've transitioned into um, graduate medical education training where we think a lot about our policies and how we support our trainees. And the idea of increasing fertility preservation benefits actually came from a resident. And because of their work, we were really able to advocate for more benefits. And I'm happy to say that because they're there, I think our trainees are thinking more about these issues that can impact family for them. There are many stories um, from my colleagues about, you know, the right time to have a family and sort of the struggles of having starting a family later on in their career. There's certainly pros and cons each way. So again, going back to there's no perfect time and that time is right for your family. I think it is really important to have the conversation. I love that you brought up the support network and how important it is to have these discussions because I also think that by normalizing these conversations and allowing your residents to feel supported enough to come to you for advice or fears of not being able to make it work within their training will help lessen burnout, will just help the field overall, will help the mental health of ophthalmologists and people in medicine in general. So I'm really happy that 
uh, you worded it so beautifully because I really felt like it captured the multi facets of why just even talking about these things is so important. Thanks. And just to close, you know, we want to give you the opportunity to, if you could impart any message on future and current ophthalmologists that are passionate about gender equity and advocacy, what would it be? I wrote a president's message for WIO when I had started off this year. And the title of it was Our Mothers, Our Daughters, and Ourselves. And I think about what kind of future. I have a almost five-year-old. Her name is Maya. I think about what world I would like her to grow up in and, you know, where women can be when she is my age. And she should be able to pursue this fulfilling and successful career in whatever field she chooses. Um, I think if we don't normalize the conversation, like you had said, and address these imbalances or inequities, we risk not having those excellent women in our field. In another study that I had participated in, it looked at the number of women who are entering residency. And while medical school now is about 50-50, ophthalmology has plateaued and is starting slightly to decrease. It's not 50-50, it's just under 40. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why not ophthalmology? Perhaps it's because the other surgical fields have become more female-friendly. I'm sure that's part of the reason. But without women in ophthalmology, we won't have women thinking about why certain diseases may affect more women or globally, why are women more likely to be blind? Unless we have women in ophthalmology and leadership, we won't achieve gender equality across eye health. And again, the changes are not on the individual level only, but the institutional changes and the structural changes that have to occur um, to make the endeavor successful. Having those policies that support the work-life integration that I had mentioned earlier, having mentorship programs like NWIO to have the conversation, to have the support, to think about the issues, at the big level, the larger level where you can work with others that are like-minded to make that world better for ourselves and our daughters or sons. Yes, that's that's a beautiful closing word. And I love that you titled it that. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Sun, for taking the time to discuss, you know, gender equity and ophthalmology with us. And I'm sure all trainees uh, will benefit from this discussion. Thanks so much for having me. And to learn more about The Lens, you can follow us on Twitter at at the lens underscore O-P-H. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get easy to read summaries of the latest ophthalmology research in your inbox every week.